We're back in Hebrews chapter 6 this morning, Hebrews chapter 6, only looking at three verses, although we'll back up to chapter 5, so we hope you have your Bibles with you. We left off in chapter 5 last week uh, with our author's deep concern that his readers have short-circuited their Christian life. They have done themselves a great deal of harm in the process of doing that because they've remained spiritual babies. They have not grown up, they've not moved forward in their Christian life, and as a result of that, they've become dull of hearing, and they've become flabby Christians, if we might say it that way. Uh, they've only been consuming, he says, in, those, in verses 11 to 14, what we might call spiritual milk or biblical milk. They have not delved into the deeper things of the Lord, and that diet has uh, affected the way they think, uh, what they believe, and how they live. And so when he comes to chapter 6, verse 1, he opens it up with the word, therefore, saying that now we're moving forward on the basis of what he just said, and therefore, he wants to talk to them about a radical adjustment that they need to make in their Christian life. Recently, I've been in a conversation with someone I dearly love, someone I've known for all their life about the things of the Lord. I've talked to this person about Christ a number of times throughout the years, Uh, They've never come to the Lord, and circumstances brought us together here recently uh, to to open that window again to talk a bit about Christ and their relationship with Him. And as as we did so, this individual told me that uh, they have never received Christ, they've never come to Christ, because, and I quote, uh, she remained in a lingering existential crisis that I clearly have not been able to keep hidden from you. So she's in this existential crisis, this philosophical crisis that she's never been able to get over. She's come to a place uh, of a standstill and she doesn't move forward. She is a very good person. Uh, She says she loves fiercely. She tries to live a good life and she does live a good life. But she does not see uh, Christ in her life and yet she's in a crisis. She knows uh, the truth about the Lord but she has rejected it at this point. She resists it. She's at a crisis point and has been there for actually uh, decades and is still there. As we talked about that uh, a little bit, she still invited me to preach to her. You don't have to tell a preacher to do that. Basically, I said, I don't want to preach to you. And she said, please do. So we're in a conversation going back and forth talking about these things. And by God's grace, we'll open that door again. And maybe by God's grace, you'll come to Christ. But as I analyzed all of that, as I analyzed her life and and, her, and I know her very well, uh, it, it seemed to me there's two basic problems going on here, two basic reasons that uh, she has not co- come to Christ. Number one, it, only the Lord can open spiritual eyes. She is spiritually dead, she's spiritually blind, and uh, only God can do that. So I can never be clever enough, I can never give her enough answers, I can never give her uh, enough uh, literature for her to come to Christ unless the Holy Spirit does a marvelous work in her life to draw him to himself because it is supernatural what the Lord does and only he can do that. But on a more uh, practical basis you might say having known her background and having known her her, where she lives, the culture she lives in and and so forth, I also know that uh, she has never really been exposed to any extent to true biblical Christianity. Uh, She uh, has never really seen much of that if any, and that's because she has been inoculated against the real thing. And this is always a concern for me as a pastor of uh, people in our church and other Christians around us, that it's very easy for us to become vaccinated against the real deal. 
inoculated against true Christianity. We think we know what it is, but we don't because we've never seen it, and we've never experienced it, and we don't know what it is. And she has had a lot of that in her life. Unfortunately, her parents took her to a liberal Baptist church that virtually denied all the basic cardinal doctrines of the faith, Um, and she grew up in that environment. And then she lives in a culture that is highly moralistic, where everybody claims they're Christians, and yet very few people take it seriously. Uh, they uh, They don't live it out. They live morally, but they don't live deeply in the things of Christ. And she's got, seen that culture, she's been in that culture all of her life, and I don't think she's really ever seen too much of the real deal, of the real Christian life. As I think about that, I think about her, and I go back to our passage of Scripture, I see a very close similarity between what the author of Hebrews is doing here, the people he's dealing with, and my friend. He's talking to a group of Christians who seem to be... Christians, at least most of them, as we'll talk about that in a moment, but uh, he's talking to a group of people who have really never pressed on for the Lord. Uh, they're not living out the real deal. Uh, they're living out a form of Christianity, but it's not, there's not much depth there. And he's deeply concerned about them because of those things. And so with that in mind, he opens up chapter 6 of Hebrews. And as you come with me into chapter 6... Uh, you are coming with me into the minefield of Christian theology. Uh, of all the passages in the Bible, there is perhaps none that has been more debated and more uh, div- divisive in some ways than these verses we're going to look at this week and next. There, there's huge, there's whole layers of Christian uh, theology based upon these eight verses that we'll look at the next two weeks. And so it's important that we go into them. As we do so, keep in mind, he's just told them it's time to press on. It's time to grow up. It's time to get deeper into the things of God. And then he immediately plunges into doing exactly that. And so as we look at these verses together, keep that in mind. But as we do so, I want to go into these passages and these verses with great humility, knowing that there has been a lot of disagreements, a lot of different ideas, whole, whole theological realms that have taken from these passages and gone different directions. We'll talk about that some today and some next week. And as we do so, I think we're going to have to be honest and say there's some things here that maybe we don't know. There's some customs and cultures that are a little bit beyond our understanding. But at the same time, I believe with carefulness, we can understand what he's saying here. And we can get the point that the inspired author of Hebrews is trying to give us. The understanding of these verses all depends, in my opinion, on who he's talking to. Once you decide who his audience is, uh, I think you begin to understand what he's trying to say. In our realm of people that are very similar to us, there are three major differences on that, who his audience is. And um, two of those views I, I reject. One I will accept and bring out to you. The first view is this, he's writing to unbelievers, and this whole passage is to unsaved people. This is the view that John MacArthur takes in his commentaries, and we all appreciate John MacArthur deeply, uh, but he's not inspired, so I can disagree with him, right? Um, I don't think he's right. He thinks that the author of Hebrews is going back and forth between audiences. Sometimes he, he writes to the saved, sometimes he turns around and writes to the unsaved, and so he's going back and forth to the audiences. And, but I, I have a real problem with that because he's writing to a Christian church. 
It's a church. It's not a group of unsaved people. It's a group of people that are probably mostly Christians. And he's writing to a church. And they're, they're largely of Jewish background. And it's unlikely that he's writing to unsaved people. Unsaved people wouldn't be on the street here at a club or something reading this book. It's the church people reading this book. And on top of that, how do we know when he's switching audiences? That's kind of hard to pick up. To know that now he's talking to unsaved people, now he's talking to Christians. How do you, how do you pick all that up? It's very difficult. I, I don't think he's right. The other view is, is that he's writing only to believers. And Roy Zuck and John Wolvard, in their wonderful commentary, two-set commentary, which you, if you want to get a two-set commentary, I recommend this one, the Bible Knowledge Commentary. And uh, it's out of Dallas Seminary. They say, and I quote, this is a warning of the danger of Christians moving from a position of true faith and life to the extent of becoming, now listen, disqualified for further service and for inheriting millennial glory. So their view is that this is not about salvation at all. This is about service and it's dealing with uh, being disqualified for service and millennial glory. Now, once again, I reject that for two reasons. The context, and we'll see that further, and you go ahead and read further down in the text if you want to, is totally about salvation and who's saved. And so if you miss that, uh, you miss the whole point. He's not writing about service. Service is not even brought up here. Salvation is brought up. And secondly, there's no mention whatsoever of the millennium. So that's just been infused in there. It doesn't belong there. So I believe he's wrong. The third position which I take, and I've mentioned this before in this series, is that he's writing to a church composed of both believers and unbelievers. And that is not that hard to note. Every pastor who gets up before a congregation like this gets up before a mixed audience. And so every Sunday morning when I'm here, and pastors all across the country, they stand up before their people, and they're talking to a mixed audience. Today I speak to several hundred people in front of me, and a couple hundred probably watching in live stream or will watch the video. And as I do so, I don't know all the spiritual conditions in this room. I know that um, some people are here who are not Christians, and they know it. And they've come for whatever reason, and they're listening. Maybe the Lord is working on their hearts, but they know they're not Christians, but they've come to church this morning. And so I preach to those people. And then there are people here who are not Christians, but they don't know it. Uh, They think they're Christians, but they don't meet the criteria of being a Christian. And I think our author is writing a lot to them. And then there's a third group of people that are here today that are are Christians. And that's most of you. But you're all on different levels of your spiritual journey, right? Some of you are further along than others. Some are more mature than others. Some are just beginning the Christian life. All sorts of levels. And so as the author writes to this church, he's writing to exactly the same kind of people. He's writing to a mixed audience. He's writing to people who, some are saved, some are not, some don't know they're not saved. He's writing to all these people, and he's trying to take them a direction to take a good, solid look at their spiritual life to see where they are before Jesus Christ. And as he dives into this, he's calling these people to examine their lives. He's encouraging them on to maturity and he's instructing and applying all these things to both groups. If this church, which is stalled out in its spiritual development, 
is to start moving forward for God, there's some specific actions they must take. And so as I pour this out today to you, I want you to look at your own heart, your own life, your own status before God, and say to yourself, how does that apply to me? As he speaks to, to these group, the groups specifically about the actions they need to take, you can apply this by God's power to your own life today, and I trust you will. First of all, we have some general actions that need taken, and we find that in the very first line of chapter 6 and verse 1. He says, Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching concerning Christ, let us press on to maturity. This is the heart of what he wants to say. This is his thesis statement. This is everything's wrapped around this little line. Therefore, let's leave behind certain things and let's press on to other things. This is his, his message. In the previous section, chapter 5, verses 11 to 14, uh, he tells them that it's time basically to grow up. Enough of this babyhood, uh, enough of living like an unsaved person, enough of living as, like an immature Christian. If you're saved, move up. Uh, they had all but forgotten some of the elementary teachings, the basic teachings that have been taught. And as one observer of, of human nature said, we, we all grow older, but it, by no means are we certain to grow up. And so just because you've been a Christian for a while doesn't mean you've ever grown as a Christian. And he's recognizing that among these people. If we're going to become mature, they will need to develop an appetite for solid spiritual food and they needed to start practicing what they've learned, verses 13 and 14. They need an appetite for spiritual meat, and they need to apply it. That's what verses 13 and 14 say. Now, what do you do with people like this? And you're, so he's, so he's the pastor, so to speak, of, to this group of people. He, he's dealing with this church. And what are you going to do with the people who have been saved for a while, but have refused to move on, to refused to grow up? Well, how do you handle people like that? And he says to them, therefore, we're going to leave behind the elementary teachings. We're going to press on. We're going to stretch. Basically, let's put it this way. You, uh, you've been waiting in the, the shallow end of the pool for way too long. It's time for you to go out in, hot, in the deep water. It's time to quit playing around on the sides like you're a little baby. It's time to get out there where the deep waters are. And you need to be stretched. Now, this is a very interesting strategy and one that is seldom practiced today in churches. Very seldom does anybody pay much attention to what he's doing here, which we should. He is not saying, let's go back now and start all over. Let's go back and give you the ABCs of the Christian life again. Let's go back and have a bunch of basic classes on the, on the fundamentals that you seem to have forgotten. He doesn't say that. And then he said, instead, he says, I'm going to press you on. You're spiritual infants, but I'm going to press you on to something of substance, to stretch your Christian life and take you out into the deeper waters. Now, we don't do this today very often because uh, we're afraid that the people that were taken out to the deep waters are going to drown. If, they, if they're not doing well with the basics, uh, what are they going to do when you load them up with the heavy stuff? When you start taking them on to deeper things? And yet that's exactly what the author of Hebrews does. 
He, he doesn't leave them in the basics. He's going to take them on to the Melchizedekian priesthood. Who, who does that? Who, who talks about things along that line? He's going to take them to some of the deepest theology in all the Bible in chapters 6 through 10. Baby Christians, because he says this, if you don't learn to eat the meat, you'll never grow up. If you stay forever in the spiritual Gerber section, you'll never grow up. And so he takes them exactly there. You can't, so the subjects that, that usually are, are, are the basics as we think of it is read your Bible and pray and serve and give and witness. These are the foundational doctrines of the faith. They're absolutely necessary, but if that is the entirety of your menu, you will never press on to maturity. There must be more than the basic five or six things on the, on the menu. Many Christians have this first year of the Christian life down pretty pat, these basics, but that's as far as they ever go. They say, well, I have lived the Christian life for 20 years, but the fact of the matter is many of them have lived the first year of the Christian life 20 different times, and they've never pressed on. The author of Hebrews and the entire New Testament never allows that to happen. We must press on. What happens then when Christians do not press on? Well, let me suggest two things that happen is they become bored. They become bored with the things of Christ. He says that to them in verse 11. He says, it's hard to explain these things to you because you have become dull of hearing. You have become bored with the things of God. They don't necessarily, they've not necessarily abandoned the faith. They've not necessarily turned away from Christ. They're just bored. Anybody here, you don't, don't raise your hand. Anybody here bored with Christ? Anybody here bored with coming to church? Anybody here bored with reading your Bible? Anybody here bored with moving forward for Christ? Well, the reason why, you've never pressed on. He, he gives no sympathy to such people. He simply said, you're not pressed on. You've stayed in the nursery. It's time to get out of the nursery. At least get to the second grade. Let's, let's move on. If you don't do that, as you grow older, you simply lose interest. You can't hang on, hang on to that basic first year of Christianity forever without moving forward. Last year, I went to a birthday party for an aunt of mine, nine, turned 90. She died a few weeks ago. Um, wonderful party. My family got together, the ones that I have down there and, uh, in the south. And uh, a number of, the, of my cousins and so forth claim to be Christians, and I think they are, some of them. Um, but they're purely baby Christians. They've never moved on. They've never been to good churches. They've never been taught the word. Uh, they're just very, very baby Christians. There was one, there's one cousin, however, who I've always looked to as someone with a little depth to her and, and strength and uh, spiritual growth. And I've always looked at that, that one in particular. And this time she came to the party, and it was a Sunday afternoon when the party took place. And we'd talked to the other cousins about uh, church that day. We'd gone to a church that was just a church I used to go to when I went to school down in, in, in Virginia that uh, had just gone totally bonkers. And uh, that was very discouraging. I came back. My other cousins told them. Told, some of them didn't even bother to go to church. Said it's not worth it. Uh, others went to very sad churches. But this cousin came, and she said to me, I said, well, how was your church today? And she said, uh, not much. I said, well, how, what was the sermon about? I don't know. 
I, I read a book while he was preaching. Now, this is the one I look to for some maturity. And so I said to her, you read a book while he's preaching? Why would you do that? And she says, because he says the same thing every week. I'm so bored with going to church. And I thought, wow, that's an example, exhibit A, of what many Christians live out day after day after day. They go to church because they know they should, but they're so bored that they can't hardly stand it. That's going to happen to everybody in this room if you become dull of hearing. He's, no, he's pulling no punches. He's playing no games here. He's putting it out on the line. Now, the other thing that's going to happen if you don't uh, move forward is you're going to not know how to discern. In verse 14, he says, But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Notice he doesn't say good from evil. Good and evil. They're able to discern what is good and analyze that. They're able to discern what is evil and wrong and analyze that. They are able to discern good and evil here because they have digested spiritually healthy food. People are so naive, right? People are taken in all the time by by different scams. A number of years ago, a guy went on Johnny Carson Tonight Show, whatever that's called. This is a long time ago. And he came on... Uh, he's dressed up real nice. He was a young man. He said, I'm starting a new charity to uh, clothe nude horses. He was quite concerned that horses need to have diapers on. That it was kind of lewd to have horses running around without diapers on. And he's starting a movement, he said, and a charity to raise funds to start uh, clothing horses. Well, most people probably thought he was nuts. But $100,000 came in for that project. And a little later on, he revealed, I was only on there to show the gullibility of the, of the American people. Now, that was pretty obvious. There's a lot more that are different. But, but Christians are just as gullible as anybody else if they don't know the truth. Now, you're not ever going to be able to chase down every conspiracy theory, every scam, uh, every hack. But you, so you must know what is true. You must be able to discern what is good. You must be able to discern what is evil so that whatever comes along is filtered through the Word of God. That's part of Christian growth. That's part of Christian maturity. Time to get off the spiritual crouch, he says. Now, how do you do that? He's talked about the positive in chapter 5, verse 11 to 14. In chapter 6, he's going to talk about some of the negatives about the things that we are to leave behind. If you're ever going to grow, he says, in your spiritual life, you're going to have to leave some things behind. You're going to have to move on. Now, if I was in a race against the fastest man on the planet, of course, I would have no chance. But if he was wearing uh, mud boots and had a mini refrigerator on his back, I'm going to add a little more here, I would probably beat him, as long as it isn't over 25 yards, all right? Uh, After that, it's up for grabs, but he's going to have to leave behind that stuff if he's going to win races, right? What is it that we're supposed to leave behind? Now, these people, he's not talking here about leaving behind bad habits and sin. That's going to come up in chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, where he says, lay aside those things. Here he's talking about doctrine. There's some things we're going to have to, to, to uh, he says, move on from, leave them behind. 
in order to be what God wants us to be. That's the context that he's given us here if we want to grow. So we're going to have to leave those things behind. The foundations are necessary as springboards, but they're not the end game. Before we leave uh, this particular issue of the, of the general teachings here, let's back up to chapter 5 for a moment and give you five characteristics of a mature Christian. So we're talking about maturity, right? What does that look like? Five things that he points out in chapter 5. First of all, verse 11, a mature Christian is attentive to the Word of God. Verse 11, he says this, Concerning him, we have much to say. It's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. The mature Christian desires the Word of God. The mature Christian pays attention to the Word of God. They want to see what it actually says. They want to dig into it. They want to pay attention. They're attentive to the Word of God. Mature Christians, secondly, will regularly feed on the Word of God. He says in verse 12, For though by this time you ought to be teachers... We have need, for, again, for someone to teach you. The elementary principles of the oracles of God have come to need milk and not solid food. And therefore, they dig into the Word of God. They regularly feed on the Word of God. You cannot be a mature Christian and not feed on the Word of God. You can feed on it here in our Sunday morning services, our Sunday schools, our small groups, our Bible studies. But you should be doing that at home as well. And we talked about that last time, developing a a Bible study program plan where you're digging into the Word. If you need help with that, we're more than happy to help you. Thirdly, recognize the need for more than milk. He says that in verse 13, For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the Word of Righteousness, for he is an infant. We have to realize we need more than the basics, more than the milk. And so we are developing that. And then verse 14, we're developing a training program. He says, but solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained. This is the, uh, the continual habit, the training process of becoming what God wants us to be. And then finally, they're learning to discern. There, there's the outcome. Verse 14, to discern good and evil. There's five marks of a mature Christian. You can look at those and examine your life and see where you are in that process. These are the five things that he marks out as a mature Christian. Now that's the general action needed. Let's go on to chapter a little further and look at some of the specifics in verse 1 through 3. And all this, all he's going to talk about these six different things uh, that he calls the basics, the elementary teachings Six different things here, and these are all rooted in the Old Testament Judaism that these people had come out of. They're Christians now, most of them, but uh, they are coming out of Old Testament Judaism. And the Christian context gives these more significance and moves us on. He doesn't say they're not important. He doesn't say they're not foundational. They are. But he says it's time to build on these and move forward. So what are these elementary Elementary teachings we're supposed to leave behind. Let's group them in two things. Foundational teachings and uh, instructional teachings. Foundational truths. Verse 1, he says, Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. Start with repentance from dead works. 
These first two are the gospel. Okay? These are the the foundation. This is the beginning stage of the Christian life. This is how you enter into the Christian life, through the gospel. And the gospel is, there's two components that go together into one action. Repentance and faith. He starts with repentance from dead works. What does he mean by that? In chapter 9, verse 14, he says, dead works are those things that defile our conscience. So that's sin. So we need to repent of sinful activity. Here we have it. You will never become a Christian until you recognize the awfulness of your sin. You'll never become a Christian until you realize that sin is your problem and you change your mind about sin, you change your mind about Christ, and you repent, you turn from those things to Christ for salvation. Repentance is is necessary. But also, good works here are are what he calls uh, dead works, is um, also good works. And here's what I mean by that. If I were to ask you what good works you have done, you might say, well, I go to church, I read my Bible, I put up with hard people, I try to be nice, I, do, I love, blah, blah, blah. Those are also dead works because those things cannot save you. You have to repent of your own good works because they're dead. They have no value before God. You must see that as no value and repent of those things. If you were marooned on a desert island, or on an island, let's say, and uh, you uh, know that the, the natives there are very primitive people, they're Stone Age type people, but they have canoes, and they could paddle you across the bay to a mainland if you could get them to do it and rescue you. So how are you going to get them to do that? So you, you, you happen to um, have a bunch of money with you. It's kind of like Gilligan Island. Remember the rich people had everything with them on a three-hour tour? So you, you took with you all this money, all right? So you turn to the, the people there on the island, and you say, Here, here's $1,000 in cash. Paddle me across the bay. And they're going to look at you and say, You're nuts. What am I going to do with paper money? It has no value whatsoever on this island. We don't use this stuff. That's dead works. All the good things you've ever done or could ever do is dead works. None of it is currency for heaven. None of it makes any difference to God. And so we start off by having repentance from dead works. That turns us to faith toward God, as he says here, which means that once we have repented of our dead works, we now turn to him by faith alone. In 1 Thessalonians 1.9, Paul says this. He preached to these people and he saw what happened to their lives. They turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. That's, Christ, that's, that's salvation. You turn from your dead works. You turn from your idols to the living God. And then later on in Acts chapter 26, verse 20, uh, he said he was preaching this message that you should repent and turn to God. There's a twofold message once again. Turning from dead works only reforms you, but faith in God saves you. The Lord gives us His grace. He reaches out to us with His gift of salvation. We receive it by turning from our dead works 
and receiving it by faith alone. And that's the act of salvation. And that's the gospel. And that's foundational. Now, isn't it odd? So some of you that are calculating with me here and thinking, isn't it odd he is saying leaving behind the gospel? Are Christians supposed to leave behind the gospel? Well, not really. But what he's saying is that is foundational. That brought you into the the, the faith. But it must be built on. It's a foundation. We build on the foundation. We don't stay right there and go no further for the rest of our Christian life. Let's move on now to the instructional truths in verse 2. Uh, he gives us four of those. These all come from the Old Testament Jewish law. And he's saying that these, uh, he's not saying they have no value. But once again, he's saying we have to move on. So we start with verse 2 uh, of instructions about washings and laying on of hands. Washings, first of all, the purification rites and ceremonies of the Old Testament was very much part of Judaism. But he says we've moved on from that now. It's symbolic of what Christ does in our hearts in washing us, but it, well, we moved on from there. And then he says, laying on of hands. Now here's an interesting thing. In the Jewish system, people laid hands on things for a couple of reasons, both, two of, both of them pointing to Christ. First of all, uh, it was a, a transference of guilt. So remember the Old Testament. They would take an animal they were going to sacrifice. They would lay their hands on the animal is symbolically transferring the guilt of their sin to that animal. Then that animal would be sacrificed in their place, dying for their sins. That's a symbolism of the Old Testament. It pointed directly to Christ. Jesus Christ would then take our guilt upon himself and die in our place. But there was a second thing, the second meaning of laying on of hands, And that was to transfer blessings. And so we have a a father who places his hands on his son's head, symbolically blessing him and, and giving him that blessing. And so the early Christians were taught that the laying that the laying on the hands of the Old Testament pointed to what happens now as Christians. Jesus Christ not only took our guilt, he gave us his righteousness. He gave us his blessing. In other words, he has imputed, our sin has been imputed to him and his righteousness has been imputed to us. And I brought that out last week. It's imputed, not imparted. I wonder how many of you looked it up because you need to know the difference. But his, our sin has been credited to his account. His righteousness has been credited to our account. And what, and here's the interesting thing, what the writer of Hebrews was calling elementary teachings, most in America would call heavy stuff. Isn't that amazing? I think that's something we ought to consider. And then he has two more. He has resurrection for the dead. The Old Testament taught resurrection of the dead a little bit. Mainly only in Daniel chapter 12 verse 2. Pretty much It. They believed in the resurrection of the dead, but they had a little teaching about that. In the New Testament, it becomes a big deal. Whole chapters are devoted to the resurrection of the dead, especially 1 Corinthians 15. It takes on a new significance. 
it, it becomes one of the motivations of the Christian life and the hope of eternity. And then he goes to eternal judgment. Following the resurrection, there's eternal judgment. Once again, rarely mentioned in the Old Testament. Mainly Daniel chapter 12. And yet following uh, death and resurrection, there comes a judgment. An eternal judgment. Put those together, especially these last two, and he's saying there's more to life uh, than, uh, than what most of us think. There is eternity in front of us. There's the resurrection of the dead. There is eternal life. And there is judgment yet to come. He wants them to learn these things. Not so that they're doctrinally brilliant. Not so that they're somehow theological scholars. He wants them to, to be very sharp theologically. He wants them to learn these things so that they can live the life Christ has planned out for them. And if they don't know these things, they cannot live out that life. When I was uh, in high school, we had a weight room at our school that the wrestlers, which I was on the team there, often used. But other people came in there as well. And there was one guy in there one day, just muscle-bound, he had all the definitions, all the muscles, just very, very well put together. And the, the coach, uh, the wrestling coach was in there with his wrestlers, and he turned to that guy who was not on the wrestling team. He said, why don't you join the wrestling team? He said, with all those muscles, you would scare the, the opponents to death. You'd probably win most of your matches just by walking on the mat. And he said, I don't want to do that. And the, and the coach got kind of upset with him, got feisty. He said, why, why do you want all those muscles? I, I don't know. It's like, he said, you just want to look good for the girls? What, what, what's your point? The guy had no answer. He, he was developing muscles for no real purpose. That's kind of what he's saying here. We're not developing spiritual muscles for no purpose. It's so that we live the life that Christ wants us to live and to portray that to others. Now he's going to conclude everything in verse 3. He's very positive here. He says, and this we will do if God permits. He says, we're going to press on if God permits. And what he's saying here is this. Uh, there, there's only so much that he can do. Christ has to do the rest. God has to give the power. God have to, has to open our eyes. And so if God permits, we will press on. We don't keep rehashing the same old things over and over. He says, press on. And the Lord will give you the ability to do that, if, if you will. The outcome of all this then is, if it, is God permits we move forward. But first we start with life. And so I would say, as I think he would say, that if you're not sure you have the Christian life, you need to first of all repent and come to him by faith. You see, dead things can accumulate, but they cannot grow. You cannot grow in him if you don't know him. Most, many of you have read the books of uh, the Russian novelist Leo Storstory. He wrote uh, War and Peace, one of, the, one of the most celebrated books of all times. He came to Christ at, one, at a point where he was about ready to kill himself. He was about ready to commit suicide. He'd been searching for a long time with God but couldn't come and bring it together. And then the Lord opened his eyes. And he says, everything in me awoke and received a meaning. Why do I need to look further? He is there. 
He without whom I cannot live. To, to acknowledge God and to live are one and the same thing. God is what life is. Well then, live. Seek God. And there will be no life without him. And after this, he said, things cleared up within me. And about me better than ever. And the light has never wholly died away. I was saved at that time. What he was saying is this, as he searched for God, and he didn't become a perfect Christian, by the way, but as he searched for God, he found that as the Lord opened his eyes, what he had always been searching for. What is it that you're searching for? What is it that my friend who has an existential crisis really is seeking and doesn't seem to know it? She's seeking God. She's seeking the one who gives life, the one who can rid her of her guilt and sin, the one who can give her eternal life with God. But she doesn't realize that. But God has plant, planted eternity in her heart. The Lord wants to change the lives of such people, but when he changes them, he changes them. And he presses us on to Christian maturity to walk with him. And so once again, going back to that first line in chapter 6, Therefore, leaving the elementary teachings about the Christ, let us press on to maturity. That's his message. That is what God is doing through this text. And that's what he'll do throughout the rest of the book. Lord, we are thankful for what we've learned today. This is hard stuff and yet so vital. Lord, we must press on. Help us to desire to be the mature believers you want us to be. But first, Lord, let us make sure we know you. And Lord, if there's anyone here among this congregation that doesn't know you, that they would recognize that today. And they would come to you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.